You're listening to Nick Luck Daily. This edition is brought to you by Fitzdares, by the Racehorse Owners Association, and by Thoroughbred Racing Commentaries Global Rankings. Good morning. Welcome to the show. Tuesday, August the 2nd, still coming to you from rural Oxfordshire today. It's a rather blustery morning here, uh, quite breezy and a little cooler than it has been of late, but temperatures set to warm up again later in the week. There's a hot race this afternoon at Deauville. The European feature group one on a, a Tuesday afternoon. What a bonus. Goes off at 2.33 British summertime and it features Jane Chapelheim's very exciting Saffron Beach taking on Tenebrism, taking on and giving weight to the three-year-old Tenebrism. It goes back up to a mile today for Aidan O'Brien and Ryan. More in a bit to follow up her victory in the Prix Jean Prat at Deauville earlier in the month. There is Group 1 action in Ireland on Sunday with the Phoenix Stakes. I'll be talking to Richard Hannan, trainer of Persian Force, later in the programme as his family seeks to win the race for the first time since 1992. There are calls today for there to be less jump racing in the summer. We'll be discussing that. We will also be discussing the front page of today's trade paper, the Racing Post, to say that Ascot strongly back the Peter Savile plan that I spoke about on the podcast earlier this week. But the Racing League is back for a second bite at the cherry, somewhat reformed, somewhat changed, and with hopes high that it can capture the imagination in a way that perhaps it didn't when last run in 2021. David Yates is newsboy from the Daily Mirror. The Racing League is back, Dave, with its unashamedly populist approach, trying to get more people into the sport. Can it fly this time round? I think that there was a sort of airsats, if you like, um, aspect of the Racing League when it started last year. Were we expected to get behind Swish Cocktails, Talk Sport, Thoroughbeard eToro? It, it was asking a lot, I think. Um, there was also the criticism, of course, from a lot of trainers that th- the event hadn't been inclusive and that they'd been shut out. But um, we can't have it both ways in horse racing. Lots of sports, including cricket, of course, has had a, a gateway via uh, events that are more easily accessible than than the core product, and this is a um, this is an attempt to do that for horse racing. I'll certainly be interested to see what changes they're going to make and and how those are, are going to improve the the second coming of the racing league. I've been speaking to Jeremy Ray. It was Jeremy's brainchild, this event, and he is continuing to run it alongside uh, the Arena Racing Company. I began by asking him what we could expect that was rather different this time around. We had 12 teams last year, Nick, and uh, this year we've come down to seven. Um, we've got two jockeys riding for each team, so there are effectively going to be 14 runners in each race, or, or as close as we can get, hopefully. And um, we've split the teams into seven regional teams. Um, the idea being that um, the, there's a hook there for people to support um, the regions as much as we could, represented by the trainers near to or with a, a link to that particular area. So we've got um, Scotland, Ireland, Yorkshire, the north, the east, London, the south, Wales and the west. Um, and obviously racing at the same tracks as last year, which is uh, starting at Doncaster, finishing at Newcastle and going back to Newcastle one other time and introducing Subble for the first time with uh, Lingfield and Windsor in the south. Can anyone then enter a horse in the Racing League this time? It's open to every trainer in the country. 
Yes, that's an important part. We we, we tried to take on board as much of the criticism, however unjust some we, we, some of it we thought was last year. Um, we did try to include everyone last year, but understandably, I think in, in the first year of any concept, some people like to sit and watch and see what happens. Other people may genuinely not have heard about it, but I think we reached everybody this year. We wrote to everybody, and the response was fantastic, actually. We had um, uh, over 100, 125 trainers and over 100 jockeys wanting to participate. Um, and that gave us the opportunity to juggle them around into into seven teams, which are all which are all well represented. Are you confident that your your jockeys, your team of jockeys in each region, can be there on a consistent basis? Because that was one of the other issues last year that you, the the door was revolving a little bit too quickly. Yes, and that and, and that's right. And I think I think the fact that we don't clash with the uh, the, the we, we started last year at Goodwood, which in retrospect was a. Uh, sorry, at the same time as Goodwood, which in retrospect was a mistake, uh, and we also obviously clashed with York, and we've deliberately avoided those those festivals because if we are the biggest meeting on the day with prize money over three hundred thousand pounds for a Thursday night fixture, hopefully that will attract um, you know, be the be the main focus for all the jockeys on the day, and we pick the jockeys via a jockey draft, and the the managers of each team, which is uh, a slightly new feature this year as well, were, were responsible for making sure that. They got you know, a range of jockeys who are likely between them to be able to cover those fixtures. So, if you were to put into a couple of sentences what you think the racing league embodies, what does it represent? What's it all about? What would you say? Um, I think what it's trying to do is say, look, the top end of racing is brilliant on on, on the weekend festivals. We've just seen a fabulous good. We've had great Ascot. If we had those all all day every day, what no problem. The trouble I've always felt in the sport is that more often than not midweek some of the fair is pretty poor and you know third division reserve football you wouldn't necessarily watch it but if there was something which was really competitive good prize money got all the people wanting to play wanting to participate then you know let's let's try and do something midweek um and hopefully have it as sort of a a um, something to engage with a with a new audience. I know I've said that so many times. It almost it sounds like a cliche, and you see it see it all the time. People desperately trying to engage with a new audience. But I've all, I've often felt that some of the simple things in other sports, you know, league tables, points table, um, just just team colours, things like that, that sort of people can identify with. We're not we can't make everybody who comes just once or twice a year racing suddenly go out and buy the racing post the next day. They've got to be allowed to just come and have fun. And, you know, there's nothing wrong with supporting your team because it happens to be the area you come from and cheering them on uh, and actually knowing that those people representing that team are doing their best. So no horse that you pick is uh, is wrong or silly or you need to know anything about it and then you can just enjoy the whole thing. And there's no place to discriminate which viewers you, you get or which supporters you get. You want them, whoever they are, wherever they're from, whether they, uh, they're into racing now or they're not into racing now. Um do you think that there is a danger of too much of a good thing that we're asking racing fans to care about too much and invest themselves in in something on the telly every day? Um, I think I think what you've got a core audience with racing fans, and and that'll inevitably linked with people who like to have a bet, people who enjoy watching the, the, the spectacle. But I think we have to accept that the people who are interested in horse racing are probably wholly invested as much as they're going to be um at the moment um they may you may know if we can encourage them to come once more each that that would that's obviously an initiative but 
it doesn't stop you know it doesn't stop you getting people to go along to i mean i, I take t20 i've always taken t20 or the or um the hundred as the example of be, being able to bring a new audience into something quite often people who've never looked at it before aren't going to get into all the nuances of the sport that doesn't matter they want a couple of hours of entertainment racing to present it provides entertainment in the way that people like to consume their their, their sport these days it's sort of you know two two and a half minutes three minutes of of, of adrenaline and then you get a chance to socialize with your friends i think you know evening evening racing is a great opportunity I and mean, i always look at the festivals in ireland and think you know there's just you can just see people having fun uh and 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 that's what you want to get and i don't think we need to worry too much about um whether people are died in the wool racing fans um, you're, you're putting on something. We're in the entertainment business, and hopefully they come along and have a good time. Uh, ITV coverage this year. Um, what is a good viewing number for the racing league on ITV4? What are you aiming for? Um, well, I don't. Uh, you, you've caught me there. I don't know what their what their figures are. I, I'm, I'm on, on a week by week basis. Um, all I know is that the the show is 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 a has a real impact. Inevitably, um, I don't want to knock Sky Sports Racing because they've done a great job with us, and and you know I'm delighted they're still covering it. Um, they brought a lot of new initiatives last year, which they're going to continue this year. Um, and I just feel that with ITV, inevitably, um, the figures are two or three times. So I'm told when it when it when it's on terrestrial television, it opens it up to a whole new audience. We get that, um, and and you know. <laughs> The, the way that they they present something it is a, it is a proper entertainment piece and um, you know I know they've got some some great ideas to do racing in a very different way um, for the racing league midweek to how they present the sort of the the top class racing at the, at the big meetings at the weekend okay so we're expecting a, a pretty different style of, of presentation just in terms of how how these fixtures enmesh with the rest of the sport Jeremy do, do arc now own the racing league effectively is the racing league an, an arc an arena racing company product no, no not, not at all we um we we're in partnership with them for this year and potentially for uh, years going forward um so that's given us the benefit of you know the a company the size of arc and people who are used to running big race meetings day in day out um and we've obviously benefited from um, sort of all their manpower and expertise across a whole load of areas so you know i really think again one of the criticisms that we, you know, we, we had to take on board last year was we were probably trying to do too much um as a small as a small company trying to say look can we have a race course please and we'll put on this show i think you know that was a bit naive we didn't work closely enough with people like great british racing we didn't work closely enough with the race courses themselves um and and we've learned and i think you know this this year it's going to be it's going to be bigger and better and dare i say it very very professionally done because all the partners we've managed to bring on board are extremely good at what they do Jeremy Ray there, Chief Executive of the Racing League. David Yates, newsboy from the Daily Mirror, is still with me. What did you make of what Jeremy had to say, Dave? I thought it was very interesting. Um, I think, let's get a negative out of the way first, Nick. Um, first of all, the, the, the team competition, I, I still find a difficult one. You know, racing has been going on for centuries and the team concept really only resurfaced in the, the late 90s with the uh, the birth of the Shergar Cup. And I still find it a, a little bit weird as a, a punter of 30 plus years that 
I am going to engage with a horse from the east as opposed to one from the north. But let's balance that by saying this is a gateway project. And Jeremy Ray has outlined um, the intention to draw people in who aren't people like me, who, who, haven't, who don't work in racing uh, professionally, who haven't been involved with it for uh, three and a half decades, and in fact, aren't involved with it currently at all. And the, the project of the, the, the concept of the gateway is an interesting one. As, as he mentioned, and, and this is the, the success of Cricket's 2020 and uh, the 100 is often seen by racing as a, as a blueprint to what we can do. And I've been to 2020 uh, fixtures and I've been to, to test matches since my, well, pre-teens. And of course, the audience is extremely different. I've been to the Oval on a Friday night when it's full of um, it, it's full of offices, people who have just finished uh, work for the week. And I suspect not many of them would own uh, a, a, a Bourne's Empire scorebook, for example, but they go along and they have great fun. They contribute to Cricket Inc., if you like. And I, su- I suspect that a few of them will then go on to buy uh, tickets for um, perhaps other limited overs games and maybe even a test match. Um, if you want uh, somebody to go and watch Madam Butterfly, you probably uh, would seek maybe to uh, to get them involved with something like Miss Saigon first and say, right, this is the story. Let's work towards Puccini as our um, as our final goal without just throwing uh, throwing them into that straight away. And with horse racing, if you are um, if you're seeking to get new people involved, then this is a viable way of doing it. I, I felt that in 2021, um, I, I thought that on occasions those those connected with the Racing League were, to put it blunt, a little bit chippy. That they they thought that uh, people would give this their their unconditional and unfailing support, when in fact. Uh, that's not really how things work. You've got to be convinced that this is worth seeing or worth participating with before uh, you go along. So I I think that the gateway, um, the gateway aspect to it is certainly interesting and I think it's viable and the sneerers can't have it both ways. We can't look at racing midweek with four and five runner fields and the disengagement with current punters, never mind the new ones um, that that brings with it. And if you have, I think, I think 14 is a good number. I think that that's, we're not looking at the 20 plus fields that sometimes we get at the, uh, at the big meetings, which I, I think are extremely hard uh, to, to pick winners in, but we're not getting the four and five runner affairs that have become uh, far too common on British race courses from day to day. So we're getting competitive fields. Everybody wants to run. I suspect that with the prize money that's on offer, those 14 runner slots uh, will fill. And so, again, that's something, never mind the new audience, that's something that will engage punters um, as we have it. Obviously, you talk about field size, you're going to get a good field size for the racing league. There's going to be a displacement effect. We know that. And that'll mean that some races for horses of that ilk that aren't part of the racing league are going to be badly affected. We've seen it with the Sunday series. It's the same thing. You put lots of money on, it will have that, that displacement effect and you will get a load of three and four runner races at fixtures that are not part of either of those ventures. When we, if we get the adoption of the Peter Savile plan, as it is now known, as it hereinafter shall be known, does that rather hold these ventures below the waterline? 
because you're actually restructuring the sport from scratch? I think that in in terms of uh, in theory, yes, it does because the 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 Peter Saville um, the, the the plan is obviously to to thin down races at the top of uh, the pyramid and as he explained to you last week to put more on at the bottom when uh, where those races are filling um so in theory yes but there is a there is a get out clause with this and we've already mentioned it and, and that is the gateway aspect of this that that you're not looking to target uh, punters who are already there uh, I, I know that the i know that the um, the Savile plan is also looking to engage a new audience. You know, aren't, aren't we all darling these days? But I, I think that there is probably room in this instance for the, uh, for, the, for the two projects to coexist. Dave, what are your thoughts on summer jumping? There is a, a growing clamour to cut back on the, the summer jumping fixtures and maybe even have a break like we used to 20 plus years ago. What would be your take on that? My take on it is that I would be in... in full agreement with that I, th- I think that um when summer jumping came in i think that there were a few reasons that one thought is is this such a good idea and i know that everything that can be done in terms of welfare is done it's always seemed a, a bit strange to me that in in high summer um horses are, are, are running over over three miles in in jumps races but again that's partly because i'm the age that i am and i remember a time when they didn't I think if we were going to have a, a balloon debate and dis- decide which fixtures uh, we were going to chuck out first in order for our balloon to maintain its altitude, I think that jump racing, summer jumping would be towards the head of the queue. I know that there are, there are valuable and competitive fixtures w- within the framework, but equally, uh, there's an awful lot of uncompetitive racing. And it seems now that from within the national hunt racing community plenty of people are giving voice to the idea that they think it should go and i must say that i find it hard to argue with that all right big race in ireland this weekend is the phoenix stakes it's a group one the field is not entirely made up yet but we do know that one of the exciting runners from great britain will be persian force who was very impressive at the july meeting Rather unfortunate runner-up at royal Alaska in a race that's working out exceptionally well his trainer is is richard hannan uh, and he, he's with me now. Richard, you're out on the gallops with two two um, stars of the future this morning. Well, I've got a mini Hannon and a mini Hughes. And it's like being with paraterrorists. They're <laughs> shouting, screaming, eating sweets at 7 o'clock. Driving. But they're good lads. And driving, yes. No, I bitch. So you've got your your, your, your son, Jack, who's who's how old? And, and your, your nephew, Desi. Jack's eight. How old are you, Desi? Six. He's six. six. He's a funny boy. <laughs> Shush. <laughs> oh, Jack. <laughs> anyway, yeah, he's just done his last bit of work, Nick, with um, Ross to come over and rode him and was very happy with him. Um, it's obviously going to be a very good race. Um, but he's never been moving better and I couldn't be happier with him going into the race, being honest. And he comes at the right time as well. It's a nice break since we missed Goodwood to go to to Newmarket and this comes at the perfect timing it's a great opportunity for him and I suppose the obvious question is we're, we're fairly sure that he's going to be meeting his um, Ascot nemesis Brad Sell what, what gives you hope that that gap can be reduced or wiped out well funny enough I watched a race last night 
And I've got to say, the winner won well. I'm obviously hopeful that, that we can beat him. Our horse has come on an awful lot since Royal Asker. But I think, you know, it's going to be an exciting race and I love to think we can turn it around. And the form took a boost last week with Royal Scotsman winning really very comfortably at Glorious Goodwood. You've spoken in glowing terms about Persian Force. Dare I say, you've almost spoken in Canford Cliffs-type terms about him. Is that the bracket that you're putting him in? Well, you know, Canford Cliffs won six group ones next, so there's a long way to go to get there, but he's probably the most exciting two-year-old we've had in eight years. And what what do you think makes him so exciting? He's always looked like the perfect two-year-old. You know, he's a very strong, good-looking horse. He's moving very well. We've got a spa here, and he falls asleep on that every day after exercise. And he's just relaxed into his role more than anything. You know, he he has a demeanour and the attitude that you always find on very good horses. He's a good bit different to anything else. Um, I was having a look through the history books to find the last Hannon-trained winner of the Phoenix Stakes. Can you remember it? <coughs> You know, I think I can. I'll tell you what it was. I was my first year training. I was being a short head with Cool Company in it, and then the last winner. What would it have been? Pips Pride. Spot on. What was it? That was years ago. <laughs> I think you might have still been at school then. I think I think I probably was. I bet it was twenty years ago. More than that. Nineteen ninety two. Thirty years ago. That is a long time. Well, we need another one, don't we? Well, you, you might just get it. Good luck, Richard. Thanks for chatting to me. You got your hands full this morning. Cheers. Yes, I have. Oh, trainer Richard Hannon there. Very excited about Persian Force this weekend. In Ireland, Dave Yates is still with me. More immediately, Dave, we've got the, the small matter of the pre-Rothschild this afternoon at Deauville. Sadly, no very elegant. She's going to wait after her last piece of work told connection. She wasn't ready yet. But we've still got Tenebrism against Saffron Beach. How do you see it shaking down? Yeah, it's a, it's a really interesting clash, this. Um, we know that, well, they're obviously both Group 1 uh, winning fillies. Saffron Beach roared back to form last time in, a, I think, what was an easier opportunity for the, uh, the Group 2 Duke of Cambridge stakes at Royal Ascot. I don't think it was a particularly strong Group 2, but she won it in really handsome style. Um, she ran some great races at three, including, of course, that narrow defeat in the 1,000 guineas when beaten by Mother Earth. She was a Group 1 winner by the end of the season with that victory in the Kingdom of Bahrain, um, Sun Chariot Stakes at Newmarket. Jane Chapelheim, the, the plan from early in this horse's three-year-old career was to go travelling with her. Obviously, they've already been to Maydan. I think that the Breeders' Cup is on uh, the agenda. It wouldn't surprise me if... Um, they looked at places like Hong Kong as well. Uh, Tenebrism, of course, back to Group 1 winning form in the Prigent Pratt last time. It's a, it's a fascinating clash. If you put a gun to my head, I think that uh, Saffron Beach is the more solid of the two. I'm a great fan of Jane Chapelheim, both as a trainer and as a person. I think she's a fantastic communicator. And when you... this this The, the theme of this Nick Luck Daily has been about uh, engaging uh, with a wider audience. And I think that Jane Chapelheim does that extremely well. So I wish her well with Saffron Beach this evening. All right, just time to reprise what happened in the U.S. over the weekend because we're right thick in the in the Delmar-Saratoga mix right now and this stuff is going to have a big impact on what happens for the remainder of the season. Let's talk about Epicenter, the three-year-old cult who flashed his star quality in the Derby, flashed it again in the Preakness, 
arguably didn't get the best of luck, but boy oh boy did he roar back in a forerunner Jim Dandy in which the Preakness winner early voting was a rather scratchy last. Zandon, that horse's stable companion, ran second. Matt Bernier from NBC Sports is with me now. Matt, the real epicentre, we saw the flash of talent in both the classic races. Do you think he needed to improve to do what he did on the weekend or not? Well, it's interesting because purely when you look at the speed figures that we use here in the United States, he really didn't run any better than he had throughout the Triple Crown campaign. He earned a 102 buyer speed figure that's on par with the numbers that he's earned in the Preakness and the Kentucky Derby and his runs down at the fairgrounds. But visually, I think this was the best he's ever been. You alluded to early voting the Preakness winner, who, all things considered, I thought was pretty terrible. Mm. He had a perfect trip out there on the front. The pace was on the softer side. Epicenter, again, a little bit tardy out of the gate, which is a a mild concern, I think, going forward. Recently, it seems like he's lost that early foot. But for him to circle a quality field the way that he did and win effectively geared down with his ears up, I think it's the best race he's ever run. I think it sets him up very well for a race like the Travers at the end of Saratoga's meeting. Uh, But the, the elephant in the room is purely from a numbers standpoint. If you're someone who uses the figures, uh, he still lacks pretty significantly in terms of numbers compared to some of the good quality older horses that we have in the States. I wanted to ask you about early voting. I watched the race and like you, I'm a, a bit of a fan of early voting and I just, I know he, everything's set up nicely for him. I just thought he was moving rather short. It's though he wasn't really extending his stride at all. It, and I don't know whether I'm now after timing because the result of the race wasn't very good, but they just he just didn't look quite right to me from a fair way out. It's, it seemed like going into the far turn at Saratoga, usually I feel like early voting, that's when he really begins to hit his stride and, and try to open up on a field. And when he, he couldn't get away from Zandon, his uncoupled stablemate, another Chad Brown trainee. I knew he was in a little bit of deep water. I didn't think he would pack it in as badly as he did for that final eighth of a mile. He was really non-competitive at any point in the run other than being the pace setter. Uh, for me, regardless of, you know, Chad Brown was quoted in the daily racing form saying, oh, well, maybe, you know, maybe I didn't have him quite ready to roll off this kind of a layoff. I, I think Tad, Chad is saying that from a CEO standpoint. I don't think Chad did anything wrong. I just didn't think that the horse ran particularly well. Um, it'll be interesting to see if they choose to bring him back in the Travers. I'm inclined to think that it's going to be a pretty tough field. Maybe you wait for a race like the Pennsylvania Derby at Parks. That'll come up in September at a mile and an eighth. It's just very difficult to take a horse like this, like early voting, off of such a disappointing effort against what we've already talked about is a very good group of three-year-olds. Epicenter will be in there. Zandon will be in there. The Haskell winner, Cyberknife, will probably be in there. And let's not forget the uh, Shock Derby winner and and Rich Strike. (laughs) Mustn't forget him. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, What do we do about Corniche now? Now, he went from Baffert to Todd Pletcher. He's not been seen since running... A wonderful race when winning the Breeders' Cup Juvenile. He came back at the weekend and he he ran a ghastly race, really, and and finished last. What of him now? Well, first things first, you had to think it was a little bit of a red flag that we hadn't seen him in so long. For him to come back at this point in the season, you know, I'm actually a little bit surprised that he came back at all, if we're being honest. And also keep in mind, we go back and look at that Breeders' Cup Juvenile as a whole. Yes, he did go out there and win. He was undefeated. He ended up being two-year-old champion. That Breeders' Cup Juvenile, by and large, has been extremely disappointing. And uh, to me, I know it's the first time going out for a new trainer, but it's not as though he's going out for 
a no name. He's going out for one of the best we've had in the past 30 years in the United States and, and Todd Pletcher. Um, as far as I'm concerned, uh, he's kind of a non-factor in many of these big races going forward simply because if you chose to stretch him out, he's dealing with the horses we've already talked about, the epicenters of the world. If you try to continue to go short, he's going to have to deal with a horse like Jack Christopher, who is probably still among the most talented of this crop. Maybe he doesn't want to go two turns, but you know he still fits among the best of the best. I, for me, Corniche is, is largely uh, a talking point and, and perhaps even a, a trivia answer to who won the 2021 Breeders' right. Cup Juvenile, one that will go down as one of the, the weaker ones in recent memory. Jackie's Warrior is a wonderful horse and has been now for several seasons. He won a grade one at Saratoga at two, three, now four. He was outstanding again in the Vanderbilt to the eye. What do, what's the actual merit of what he achieved at the weekend? I mean, it's stunning. He's five for five at Saratoga. He's won a grade one as a two-year-old, three-year-old, and four-year-old at such an historic racetrack. He's never been better from a speed figure standpoint. He's as good as he's ever been. Uh, and really, the question now boils down to what does he have left to accomplish? Uh, it's a Breeders' Cup sprint victory. Unfortunately, he didn't run particularly well last year at Del Mar. We found out afterward that he had a little bit of a physical ailment, sidelined him until April of this year. If he maintains this kind of form, he's arguably the most likely winner on Breeders' Cup weekend, period. Uh, again, he's got to maintain this form for another few months, but in the hands of Steve Asmussen, I see no reason why he wouldn't stay in this kind of great ah. form. And, of course, the Breeders' Cup is at Keeneland, not at Del Mar. Del Mar, we know, can be a bit funky, as it was last year. Uh, was the result of the San Diego handicap this weekend at all funky? We had Royal Ship beating Country Grammar. The pair of them have knocked heads a number of times in their careers to date. A fair reflection of what they're capable of now, or do we expect Country Grammar first start since winning the Dubai World Cup to move forward? I, I think Country Grammar is the one that you want to take out of the race. I thought this was a distance far too short for him. He's a true 10 furlong horse, eight and a half off of a layoff. I thought all things considered, he ran quite well. Royal Ship was a surprise, but he's a horse that's always hinted at being able to run big, big races like this one. The question is, can he string multiple ones together? He's yet to do that really in his career, whereas Country Grammar, really for the past two and a half years, when he's run, he's been remarkably consistent. I think he moves forward. The problem for any of these horses out in Southern California is waiting for them in the Pacific Classic is flight line. And it seems like it's all systems go for the John Sadler trainee. Uh, point blank, if he runs his race, he probably beats them all. And this weekend, the Whitney at uh, Saratoga. What are we looking forward to? I mean, it's a fantastic field. Not going to be a giant field, but you're going to have Life is Good taking on Olympiad, taking on Hot Rod Charlie, perhaps American Revolution in there as well. Uh, could very easily be a preview of the main players in the Breeders' Cup Classic, maybe with the exception of country grammar and flight line but i think it's a fantastic race life as good as as talented as any of them the question is how far does he truly want to go and olympiad for whatever reason it feels like he still slides a little bit under the radar for a horse for bill mott that has been nothing short of spectacular ever since they stretched him out to two turns so may not be the best betting race but purely from an entertainment standpoint the whitney is as good as it gets matt thanks so much anytime buddy well, it is Tuesday, and every Tuesday on the podcast, we go around the bloodstock world with our friends at Weatherby's, their excellent stallion book, and their equally brilliant global stallion app. I'm really pleased to say we are reaching parts that other podcasts routinely do not reach once again today, and we're off to Norway this time to check in with Maria Roberts, who's a thoroughbred breeder. Her farm's near Hoxund, which is about an hour west of Oslo. Anne-Marie also chairs the Norwegian Thoroughbred Breeders Association. And I feel 
Maria, that we, we are hooking up at an important time off the back of what I would say are two excellent performances at Glorious Goodwood from Scandinavian trained horses. A good eye from Sweden in the Stewards Cup and, and Hotline Bling in the Thoroughbred Stakes, rather controversial um, placed effort there, but but very good runs. Is this a measure of Norway and Sweden as a as an emerging force to a greater extent, do you think? Absolutely. I would say that, you know, the Scandinavian horses uh, do have quite a high standard at this point. And we do travel Europe a lot and at wintertime, uh, the Dubai Festival. Um, and I think both, you know, the horses now at uh, at Goodwood were trained by two up-and-coming trainers, um, young trainers. Uh, so it does seem quite positive for the Scandinavian market when it comes to, to you know, racing abroad as well. And tell me a little bit about the overall health of the sport in Norway domestically. How, how popular is it? Is, is racing a, a, a growing sport, a shrinking sport, something that people enjoy going to? Mm. Um, I would say that, uh, you know, historically, uh, trotters have, you know, the strongest uh, foot footprint here in, in, in Scandinavia. But uh, I, about 10% of, of all racehorses uh are into you know thoroughbred racing and uh, uh, it's, it's you know it's, it's quite a strong uh, market uh, as we we pull together you know both amateurs and, and professionals um, in all three countries and uh, the history is quite young of course in comparison to the UK um, but still uh, we have eight tracks and. Um, we have about 1,500 horses in training, I guess. And um, there's an enthusiasm uh, among the trainers and, and owners here. So so definitely, yes. And, and how closely are aligned are, are Norway, Sweden, Denmark in terms of the administration of the sport and the promotion of one another's sport? I would say today, nowadays, you know, in many ways, we are quite a united market uh, and quite a transparent one as well because... You know, it's, it's quite easy to get the picture of racing in the different countries. And as well, uh, we do keep our own classic races. Um, but uh, still, it's, 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 a, it's a big, you know, it's a, a co- cooperation here. So um, I would say that it's, it's uh, definitely a united market. I would say that. Mm. And in terms of attracting international horses to Norway to race, what what are the the best races in Norway, and um, to what extent are you are you achieving that objective at the moment? Um, we've been quite lucky with that actually, because we have four Group Three races in Scandinavia, um, and the prize money is 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 good. So uh, two in Stockholm, one in Norway, and one in Denmark, uh, and we see uh, guests from. All of Europe, at least, uh, every year. Um, so it's it's uh, it's a market. I think more trainers get their eyes open for, um, and uh, we're very pleased with that, of course. Hmm. Tell me about Norway's star racehorse at the moment. Okay, so we have Frankel of the Fjords in Norway. Um, that's uh, Square the Lin. Uh, he's a beautiful. Uh, horse rated 116. Uh, he has won the Stockholm Cup three times, um, and he's he's been racing uh, both in Dubai and uh, outside of Scandinavia as well, and, and made some strong performances. So 
he's he's definitely a horse that we you know we're very excited to see if he can maybe win a group two or even a group one if if he's if he's fully if he's okay yeah and, and where he where might he head outside Norway do you think um it's 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 natural to think uh, one of the the grass uh, races in the UK or or Germany. Um, and I know the trainer is open, you know, to to travel a bit further as well if if the right um, if the right race pops up. So um, now he's a very interesting horse to to follow, and and he's been like you know the the big star in Scandinavia for, for quite some years now. Um, and before him was the the Appello Metra was the big star here, uh, who is now the leading uh, stallion uh, in Scandinavia, and I've been for quite quite some years. Maria, I want to talk to you about your your own interest in the in the sport. Where did it begin? Well, uh, I was born in Sweden um, at the big horse center Flingen, and I just started out, you know, riding out like an amateur. Uh, took up training, and moving to Norway, I also started up my own stud. Uh, so we we're just outside Oslo, and uh, you know, the interest is the passionate for the horses and about the business I run. Uh, we keep about 10 mares uh, and I have some loyal owners. And uh, at the moment, I'm, I'm preparing five of our yearlings for, for the annual auction here in Oslo. So it's a way of life. Now, am I right in thinking you're, you're standing a stallion yourself? Yes. Uh, we've been standing this year um, economic model. Um, he's a son of Flatter. Um Owned by Dikaman Racing, and he's a you know he's well bred first season sire, um, and he's a smart dirt performer f- uh, for Chad Brown. He he was rated 117 after winning a Group Three, and he was second in the King's Bishops, uh, beating horses like Mind Your Biscuits. So I would say he's the highest rated stallion to to stand in Norway, and uh, uh, we have high hopes for his offsprings. Hmm. And in, in Norway, are you trying to breed a, a mainly a dirt horse like him, a, a bit of a turf horse, a bit of both? What, what What's your what's the uppermost in your mind? Um, I would say, you know, we have big races in all of Scandinavia. And as I look at us as an united market, I would say that both dirt and, and grass uh, uh, is doable as, as you know, uh, producing top, top class horses. Um, but uh, we've, we've seen that some of the American dirt blood have had, you know, a huge, huge uh, success with the Scandinavian mares. Many times, you know, Northern Dancer bloodlines uh, and, and you add to that, you know, Prospector and AP India, for example. And, and that's, a, that's, you know, that's a classic match. So, um, yeah. And of course, first season sire is always first season sire. But uh, we have high hopes, as I say. Hmm. And because you're you're only paramutual, you're you're tote only in in Norway. Your betting activity four hundred and fifty five million euros a a year. I, I'm guessing that that the prize money is pretty competitive. I would say that. Uh, I would definitely say that. And you know, there are some um, uh, some upsides uh, when it comes to racing in in Scandinavia. We have, for example, something called the Scandinavian breeder system. Um, so where you can enter your stallion before the breeding season um, and uh, it's one stud fee and you have many nice races with great prize money for two-year-olds to four-year-olds 
Uh, and this year, among others, uh, entered, you know, Coomer, Glen Eagles, Gustav Klimt, Hunter's Light and Reliable Man. So um, it's, you know, uh, if, if you play your cards right, you can definitely make a living out of it. And uh, um, I would say that uh, it's, it's definitely uh, a market you can can be interesting to put your own mare uh, to breed, actually. Um, in addition to this racing series, we do have a 20 percentage uh, breeders premium uh, in all races and 40 to 50 percent owners premiums in the races mm. or import trade horses as well. So definitely possibilities to, to, to breeding here. Mm. And Maria, just finally, one of the most famous exports from from norway is william buick who is half norwegian himself and is set to be champion jockey in in the uk this year after a couple of near misses how proud of of william is the norwegian racing industry very obviously so you know he's the proof that you you should follow your dreams and it's big inspiration um anything is possible if you're motivated and and you know hard work and so on so Definitely, that's something that we're very proud of. I would say that, and I must add that you know um, we have you know a very uh, big focus uh, in addition to to William, also to the animal welfare here. You know, being a high priority as as racing integrity. So uh, I think Norway is the only country uh, who only allows uh, cushion whip in two-year-old races. Uh, the rest of Scandinavia, we 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 do have allowed to, to bring the, the cushion whip, but only with the reins, you know, hold the reins at all times. So, um, yeah, it's it's uh, it's a big focus on that part as well here. How do you how do you find racing with with just hands and heels? I mean, uh, as long as as long as it's safe enough, um, uh, there shouldn't be a problem. But I do understand that you know. Out of security, it could be a point to, to bring a cushion whip and, and you know to have the possibility to, to avoid those um, those uh, accidents that shouldn't happen. So, um, but we see we see it's it's working fine here in Norway. So we're hoping you know to be a a country that go in front in this in this matter. Mm. Maria, thank you very much for your time. No problem. Thank you. Well, thank you to Maria and to all my guests today. David Yates is still with me. He's going to round off the show by giving you a winner this afternoon. I don't know whether he's using one of those um, outstanding pace maps that has enabled him to pick the correct draw for the last two Stewards Cups for, for Comanche Falls. You jest, my leash, but I... Not, not did, a bit. I'm deadly I did serious. Send you, I did send you a copy of that pace map that, that I typed out with my own fair hand. So steady exactly. on. Exactly. And, and Michael Dodds on yesterday's uh, NLD um, credited you with your, with your excellent work. Um, right. Okay. Well, in, in delivering two Stewards Cup victories, I hope a case of something nice is winging its way to, to um, well, you the next Ditchling Wine Society, maybe. We shall see. It was, it was, it was really enjoyable to be involved uh, with Comanche Falls, and I was absolutely thrilled to see the horse uh, win for a second time. Uh, this evening, however, we go to Chelmsford City for the 7-10 race, and it's Campesi, um, a horse who stepped up to two miles at Chelmsford City last time and, and ran an excellent race behind Son of Red. That horse is a, a lightly raced 
dual purpose horse who won well uh, that afternoon it was a couple of Sundays ago but Campesi is off the same mark here I don't think that the step back in distance to a mile and five will be a problem because he's won over shorter uh, this season so he's the one 710 race at Chelmsford City the selection is number five Campesi well, you'd never get a, a hospital pass from Campesi, nor would you on this podcast. We will see you again tomorrow. Thanks to David. Thanks to you for listening. That was Tuesday, August the 2nd. Bye-bye. You've been listening to Nick Luck Daily, brought to you in association with Fitzdares, the Racehorse Owners Association, and Thoroughbred Racing Commentary. Mm-hmm.